Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Arc Invest's For Your Innovation podcast featuring Anthony Noto, the CEO of SoFi, a leading neobank in the United States with 7.5 million members and nearly $19 billion in deposits. We're also joined by Kathy Wood, founder, CEO, and CIO of ARK Invest. And I'm Andrew Kim, an analyst helping out with ARK's consumer internet and fintech strategies. Anthony and Kathy, it's great to have you both on the call today. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can start very big picture. So since the turn of the century, the financial markets underwent significant changes. I know, Anthony, Kathy, you both have decades of experience under your belt, Uh, maybe starting with the tech and telecom bubble. Anthony and Kathy, can you talk through the evolution of the financial markets since then and lessons learned as investors navigate the markets today? You know, I, I'll start and and uh, because I'd like to introduce Anthony in a different kind of way. I've known Anthony since 1999. I thought it went way, way back, but Anthony's a lot younger than I am. So um, uh, 1999 was uh, the, you know, we were in the bubble and stocks were going up fourfold a- after they went public. And it was just such a wild time. Anthony was there as an analyst at, at Goldman Sachs in the tech space, media and tech, sort of the early stages of this convergence between media and technology. Uh, and I was his client. And I remember um, during that time, I mean, he was, he was new to the business and here he was handed the hottest group. And um, I'd love to know Anthony especially because we get the question all the time now. Many people think that with AI, we're in a reincarnation of the bubble from the late 90s. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what it was like then and compare it to what is going on now. What I'd say is as it relates to AI, I would say 99, 2000 would not be the relevant time period for AI today. AI... Um, the relevant time period would have probably been pre-browser um, before we had Netscape and Explorer browsers and uh, the others that emerged over time, so probably more in the mid to early 90s. Um, by 99, 2000, you know, the browser was out. It changed fundamentally the ability for entrepreneurs, founders to use this interface to be able to access um, the internet and to be able to deliver content to your PC that was unique and it enabled everything from buying travel online to buying e-commerce to consuming media. At the time, video was not enabled because we were large and narrow band connections. And that came in like 
0304 when we got uh, broadband adoption hitting the ma mass market. Um, but at that time period, what I'd characterize it as um, companies had already been funded through their A or B or C round and they were going public well before they had reached the point of profitability or even proved product market fit. Um, and as they went public, they were capitalized and you know they were burning significant amount of cash. And as the financial markets decided to stop, public financial markets decided to stop funding them, um, many of the businesses just ran out of capital. And there was no way for them to cut costs to reach scale because they were actually losing money on a variable profit basis. And so there wasn't a lot of pricing leverage to offset those costs, those variable costs. And the variable costs were, were largely um, hard to change because the industry hadn't developed a lot of the second order effects of the need for distribution for the internet or the need for narrowband connections or customer service or credit card fees, all the things that eventually uh, found a way to become much cheaper on a variable profit basis, which meant you needed to, to generate less revenue per account or per unit economics. Um, so it was a time period where there were 10 pet companies and there was five store companies and 30 auction companies and a lot of specialty retailers uh, that really just put their catalog online. And we had a fallout and it, things really consolidated. And ultimately, it led to a couple of really big winners by category. And we often talk at SoFi about the winner to take most. And, you know, we think we're positioned to be one of the winners that take most in the fintech space. I think in the AI space, it's really much earlier in that that comparison um, in that we're not seeing companies go public yet. We're not really even seeing a ton of commercial applications. We're still in more of the research, experimentation, product development stage. I agree with you. And I'm really happy you brought us back to those early days of uh, the internet. I think that is the appropriate analogy. And we had all of the 90s to evolve into you know, what became a very, very big ecosystem. And as you said, many companies before their time back then. And, and I think so many people were burned and, 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 you know, the more senior portfolio managers out there right now are, are so cognizant of the mistakes made way back then that they're, you know, bringing that into their firm. So I see a lot of caution, a lot of caution with the exception of a few stocks who, you know, they're known as the Magnificent Six now, I guess. And that's just a function of indexation. That's actually just playing it, quote unquote, safe, even though we think uh, that that AI could be disruptive to them in ways that people do not understand right now. So uh, I agree. Uh, it, this is not the late 90s. Uh, and in fact, what I often say is what is happening now is is being caused by the seeds that were planted from 1980 through the bubble. But the technologies weren't ready and the costs were way too high. And uh, some of them are now just flourishing now, 25, 30 years later. So uh, I, think, I think night and day, as you say. But uh, I'm intrigued, uh, winner take most in the fintech space. That's a really nice setup, you know, uh, and I know Andrew's going to ask a lot of questions in this realm, but just with a sort of a big picture question, we agree with you. Uh, and the way we've characterized it is by using the expression digital wallet. And, you know, we've been searching for, you know, who uh, are the the likely who are the contenders first and who are the likely winners 
so uh, that's a very big picture way of setting it up. And you've just uh, drawn us in by saying you think that SoFi will be one of the winners who take most, let's say. Could you describe the landscape you see right now and why SoFi is, uh, from your point of view, and uh, and truth be told, we, we disclose our trades uh, and holdings at the end of every day. We do hold SoFi, so definitely want to, uh, want to give that um, a disclaimer, shall I say. Sure, absolutely. And uh, I, I hold it as well, as you could imagine, and it's probably disclosed. I do think there will be several winners that take most. I think SoFi occupies the space uh, similar to Amazon in that we're a one-stop shop for consumer financial products. We're also vertically integrated in that we own our own technology. And not only does that technology help power our functionality, we turned it into a business where others are paying us um, for those technology services. Uh, And the two are very synergistic together. I do think there will be some category killers that go after a specific underserved market. We're really meeting the needs of what I'd call mass affluent, high earners, not well served. Uh, But there's also those people that are underserved, underbanked. And you see companies like Chime, you know, being very successful there, Dave.com, which is a public company, um, making great inroads. And I also think like there is a category killer as it relates to specific verticals. Clearly, Robinhood is the leader within brokerage. You know, I think they will struggle to do more than just brokerage. They do offer a debit card and that has had some success. And I think if they're smart and innovative, they could drive more success there and continue to expand horizontally instead of just vertically. But they have to go slow and prudently just given, you know, the volatility around their business and the lack of visibility into some of their their revenue streams, given that where they come from and options and cryptocurrency and other, other revenue streams like that, that can be pretty volatile. So I see the world evolving into a very consolidated handful, you know, four to five, and those are a couple of them. You know, a firm who's done really well, they're approaching it from another perspective. Again, I think it's an underserved market that can't really get lending. And uh, they're using both, you know, point of sale transaction capabilities and lending at the at the spot rate, so to speak, um, to help people buy things that otherwise would have gone on layaway in the in the old days. Buy now, pay later being the solution for that regard. So, you know, those are some of the you know four to five I think will survive and do quite well because they've either reached scale or they have a unique technology platform that gives them an, an advantage at this point. Before uh, handing it over to Andrew in terms of more specific uh, questions. Blockchain technology, crypto, or digital assets is potentially a disruptor uh, to the financial world. How how do you see those companies? Well, Coinbase is coming at it from from that angle, um, but how how do you see um, SoFi becoming a part of that ecosystem, especially if it is going to become so disruptive? Yeah, the way we've historically operated and and integrated um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and other uh, cryptocurrencies into our offering was we originally offered the ability to buy, I think it was up to 20 different cryptocurrencies on the platform. If you were interested in allocating a portion of your portfolio to these asset classes that are obviously not proven in terms of their value yet, it's not a cash flow generative type of business, but it does have real asset value. We would warn our members that it was an unproven asset and quite volatile and they could lose all of their money if they if they bought those um, types of assets on the platform. But our view is 
if it's an asset that our members want to buy, we should make it available to them in a safe and reliable way, in a in a responsible way. And we were doing that. Um, as part of getting our bank license, it's prohibited to have cryptocurrency activity as part of a bank. And so we had two years to make a decision on discontinuing that or moving towards a finder model. And so we've moved, um, we've discontinued it. We now give people lead generation to be able to buy cryptocurrency if they want on a partner's platform. One thing that's been a really good progression and that has evolved is spot Bitcoin ETFs. And so we see a, a fair amount of activity over members that used to actually buy Bitcoin. Now they're buying the ETF and satisfying their desire to have exposure to this incredible technology, this, you know, evolving you know, forefront um, in their portfolio. So it happened, we are so fortunate that the Bit Bitcoin ETFs came out just as we were discontinuing the ability to buy those assets. So it's been a very beneficial move. I think there will continue to be evolution in the regulatory environment. I do see a day where banks can operate with cryptocurrencies and blockchain, because I think it's such a critical technology, um, not just as an asset class to buy, but as a technology to prevent fraud, to be able to combat high levels of risk in different areas. Um, and today it's being used to actually perpetrate fraud in some cases, but inherently can be used with the combination of AI and blockchain to prevent high levels of fraud and anti-money laundering and those types of activities. Yeah. And one, one other benefit in terms of having uh, ETFs, Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETFs on your platform is I presume they can be used as collateral for, for lending. Is that correct? Whereas, of course, the underlyings could not. Yes, that's correct. So um, I'm not sure if we had have to check with our team if at SoFi we allow you to have margin against uh, ETFs. There are some ETFs because they're so volatile um, that we do not provide margin against. So um, I'd have to check with the team on okay. that. Yeah, we just, have, we just know uh, that that is one of the arguments others have used uh, for it. Um, so, Andrew. Uh, I guess just following up on the spot ETF demand, uh, would you say that for the SoFi customer cohort, um, the spot ETFs kind of acted as a one-to-one -one replacement for their spot crypto needs? I only ask that um, relative to, uh, with respect to, I guess, Robinhood's most recent earnings in which they talked about 95%, 5% uh, split between uh, spot trading versus ETF exposure. Yeah, so Robinhood still has the ability to buy actual Bitcoin on their platform. So we, because we don't, I can't make that same comparison. It would just would be apples to oranges. I'd say there's definitely been a high level of interest. It's been, you know, a top searched um, product. Um, we've seen nice flow into that asset class. I think it's a better way for, you know, our investors are, are generally beginning investors or novice investors, not sophisticated traders in, in most cases. And so it's a, it's a more diversified way, a better way for our members to be able to have exposure to cryptocurrency. So it came at the, the perfect time. Um, I was really worried when we offered crypto that we would have, you know, retail investors that didn't really understand speculation and didn't really understand the volatility of these asset classes losing a ton of money, which is why we put every time they put in a trade, you lose all of your money. And so I'm really glad the regulatory bodies were able to get to this point and offer it, which I think is a more diversified, safer way for novice and beginning investors to have some exposure. SoFi underwent significant growth from the time you joined as CEO in 2018 to today, right? It, you led its transformation from a student loan destination to a comprehensive financial super app. 
can you give us an overview of your journey over the past six years and share how the digital wallet landscape evolved from your seat? Yeah, and I really love your characterization as a digital wallet because I, I think of it in a very similar way. And you have everything in your wallet. You have uh, access, hopefully, to all of your assets and all of your money and, and other important things as it relates to your financial life. It really started for me in October of 17. I was at I was at Twitter. I was the chief operating officer. We'd gone through a really tough four-year transition. And that fourth year was our first year in which we started to see an emergence of growth again. Um, and we were going to be gap profitable in the fourth quarter. And I get a call from a recruiter. And I said, you know, I have, I have no interest in leaving Twitter. Um, we finally got to the point where I'm having a lot of fun. We're going to have great results. And all the changes we've made are really paying off. And the recruiter was very persistent and kept calling and told me that I was offending the board of directors at SoFi, many of uh, who people I knew for not even looking at it. It was a CEO job and I was a COO, so why wouldn't I want to be CEO? So I finally, finally dug into it. And as I dug into it, and this will tie back to when Kathy and I first met, it caused me to take a step back and say, why isn't there an Amazon of consumer financial services? Yes, there's PayPal and there's Square, but there's no like all one-stop shop for everything you want to do in your financial life. And the second question I asked is, would that be interesting? Would that be valuable? And the cohort of people I thought it would be valuable for were people like my brothers. They, were, they did well academically. They did well professionally. They're making $150,000 to $400,000 a year, but they were struggling to live the American dream. They couldn't have the size house they wanted or number of kids or the career or the location. And so I went to the board and, and I basically pitched, let's build a relationship financial services company, someone that can help me get my money right across everything I do so I can live the American dream. I can get the payoff for doing well professionally. And I, I explained to the board that in order to do it, we had to do everything. We had to do loans, checking savings account, credit card, investing, insurance, because each one of those is an important cog to your overall financial profile. And if you don't manage all of them right, for example, you overpay for a house, you'll never have enough discretionary spending because your mortgage is so high to invest in your 20s. If you don't invest in your 20s, you can't catch up later. The compounding effect gets lost, and that's an optionality value that you lose. Similarly, if you overpay for college, you'll struggle to be able to own a home, which is an important economic asset to have and an emotional asset to have. So I pitched the board on that complete um, strategy. Uh, which is what we've deployed since then. And then I also explained to him we'd lose four to $500 million the first year, a couple hundred million dollars the second year, third year, maybe 100 to 200 million. And then in the fourth and fifth year, start to get to in below $100 million. And I think I said we wouldn't be profitable until probably two, 2025. And we got there in 2024, fortunately. I'd say the, the how it's unfolded is completely different than anyone could have imagined. The first year, rates were going up significantly supposed to be rate increases in 18 and 19. Turned out we got to the first quarter of 19 and we went to rate decreases, not increases. We obviously had the pandemic and we've had unprecedented rate increases again. So it's been somewhat of a turbulent up and down. And the, one of the things that we've benefited from is that this broad-based offering for the consumer actually diversifies our business so that we can go left when it's time to go left, we can go right when it's time to go right. And so the team's done a great job of not just building a consumer value proposition that's unique and really hard to replicate, but it's also resulted in a business mix that allows us to operate differently in different environments. So it seems like you were right at the onset, as in your digital wallet thesis. Has it changed at all from when you joined to now? I would say some things have been harder and some things have been easier, but the thesis and 
you know, I knew that in order to be successful and achieve the mission of being this one-stop shop, we would need to have a lot of capital. And that's definitely been the case. And we've been fortunate to have the capital. I think it would have been a lot harder for us to get the capital if we didn't have a SPAC IPO. A lot of the people said, Anthony, why did you go to the route of a SPAC? You did probably 100 IPOs when you were an analyst at a banker. And I said, I actually needed to raise a significant amount of capital at once with certainty in order to apply for a bank license because my balance sheet was primarily equity, was primarily preferred equity. In order to take out the preferred equity, I needed to have a meaningful valuation and a meaningful amount of capital to do so. And so that that was a challenge that wasn't anticipated, but the SPAC enabled that to happen. And it was a very unique product for us and um, worked out quite well. In addition to that, you know, the regulatory process, you know, you have advisors, you have outside legal teams, bankers, no one, no one could predict what happens in, in the regulatory process. They have expectations, they give great advice, but it comes down to personalities, it comes down to politics, it comes down to what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the macroeconomic environment. And so the, the path to a bank, well, we got the bank license, and I'm very happy that we have, and it's been incredibly valuable to us. The path there was very turbulent, and it took a lot of skills I didn't know that it would take to get to. So that, that was a surprise. I thought there'd be more successful companies competitively. I was really worried about Goldman Sachs. I was worried about a couple of other players copying our strategy and going after the same end game. Um, and they've all kind of failed at this point. And I know that sounds very egotistical, but the facts are the facts. We're the only one operating in nine products at $2 billion of revenue, gap profitable at our long-term margins and driving tangible book value growth. I thought there, I thought it would be a longer war. Yeah, did just to leverage off of that, why did they lose? Was it just not the right DNA or was there, do you think there was disagreement internally and so they weren't all rowing in the same direction? I think for the existing banks and the existing incumbents, it's it's number nine or 10 on their priority list. So they have big businesses that pay the bills every every day, that they have huge client bases, they have huge capital bases, they have processes. And when it's ninth or 10th on your list, you always can go back to seven, the other seven, if the ninth one's not doing well. And so I, I call it death grounds. Some people call it burning the boats. Like when you're a startup, you kind of dock the boat on an island and you get off the boat and you burn it. There's no turning back. You're on the island that you've decided to be on. In their case, there was no burning the boats. They always could go back to their other businesses and survive if the a thing they were innovating on did, didn't work out. So I think that was one part of it. I think the second part of it is like, I don't care what anybody says, being in Silicon Valley gives you unique access to talent, but also gives you a, a unique access to a mental model. We hired former consumer banking people and we hired former technology people and we made them SoFi people. And it was just a mentality about innovation, iterating and learning and using data. And like the, the scientific process is what results in these big, you know, innovative products. Like there's no way Tesla becomes Tesla without the scientific process of trying and trying and failing and reading. And I used the light bulb as the example. Silicon Valley is great at creating light bulbs. It's great at trying and trying and failing and trying and being resilient in that regard. And if you don't have that persistence and that resilience, getting down, knocked down nine times, getting up 10, then you you never get the light bulb to turn on. You never find the right filament, the right current, the right voltage, whatever whatever it may be. So I think that's a part of it. And then the last piece of it is, I just think people thought it would be easier to do 
um, than it actually is. And it's, this is a category, financial services is a category where people have to trust you. I don't necessarily have to trust you if I'm borrowing money from you, but if I'm giving you my money, if I'm investing with you, I have to trust you. And that's also a high hurdle to get over if you're not a well-known brand. And I interrupted you. Uh, was there was there uh, uh, something else that has surprised you along the way? The, those are two good ones. Yeah, I would never would have guessed that we'd have uh, two of the largest banks in our country go out of business, both in California, both technology-oriented. I mean, Hank Paul used to say, your house and your street is only going to be worth what the other houses on your street are. And so to be in California in the same region as these other two banks, technology oriented, you know, it definitely raised the level of scrutiny and the level of care that we have to bring to the table every day. And the team's done a great job navigating it, but it's definitely was what is absolutely not expected. We're still seeing demand deposits leave the banking system. Um, has, has, has the psychology shifted from, you know, scrutiny to, uh, you know, more trust and, and are you, are you actually becoming a beneficiary of this? You know, we've been a beneficiary, but not because of, um, anything other than the design of our product and, you know, in FinTech, there's not a lot of talk about product design and product market fit and the application experience, but those are huge differentiators for us. And I'm actually glad no one talks about it because they don't understand how important it is. But we architected our digital wallet or the equivalent of a checking savings account, SoFi Money. We architected it such that the value you get will only be unlocked if you're willing to make us your primary account. I do direct deposit with us. So our 4.6% interest is really high, but you only get that if you do direct deposit. You also get no fees, you get reward points, you get a free certified financial planner, you can pay your bills any way you want, you can mobile upload a check, we give you access to your capital faster and quicker than most firms would, because we have all the information on you. And so as these events started to happen, we were able to show our board, to show the regulators, the efficacy of our design. 90% of our deposits are direct deposit customers, which means they're sticky. It's not just hot money chasing an interest rate. And then 97% of them were insured. We provide $2 million of insurance through a separate program. We partnered with somebody on, on top of the $250,000 that we are able to provide through FDIC insurance. So we supplement that through a partnership. So it actually amplified our differentiation in a way that we couldn't have paid for. And so we've had you know more than $2 billion of new deposits each quarter and the value prop is really compelling and we continue to see the flywheel work in incredible ways and people cross buying to other products and striving down marketing efficiencies, et cetera. And Andrew can can talk a little bit more about this than I can, but um, because of the way you measure success, uh, you use this concept of members and as opposed to another concept, whether it's month MAUs, DAUs, what have you. Um, I, I think it's been a little bit difficult to break through to the financial community that, that you know, only knows how to analyze using those or that lens. Um, Andrew, would you say it any differently? I'd love to, I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey and, and why you decided to take it. Is that, is that right, Andrew? Did I yeah. characterize I was really skeptical when I first started modeling SoFi, and I wanted to just look at app MAUs, for example, but the correlation was so much stronger on a you know total members basis with respect to like revenue growth. 
than it was for these active members um, must mean that the lifetime is just so much longer on SoFi than, I guess, how we traditionally view consumer apps. Um, yeah, maybe, Anthony, could, could you give us more color there? Yeah, and I, I lived in the social media world at Twitter, and I covered, you know, Facebook and as a banker and, and other companies that used MAUs and DAUs. And when I joined the company and we were talking about our metrics, I said, listen, the reason why Twitter and Facebook created the thing called MAU and DAU was because they were trying to create a proxy for what future revenue would be. And if you didn't have an active user, then that user couldn't see ads because they were not active. They're not on the platform enough to insert an ad every 10 tweets or every 10 posts on Facebook. And so people created these monthly active users and daily active users as a proxy for that's a revenue generating unit in the future. And then we'll figure out what the average revenue is per MAU or average revenue is per DAU. And so they were proxies. And what I said to the team was, our actual product produces revenue. We don't have to add a revenue model on top of it. When someone opens a checking account, and they put money into it, it's producing revenue as long as they, if there's no money there, it won't produce revenue. But our proxy is actually revenue. And revenue is the monetization vehicle where the engagement metric, sorry, the engagement metric in the old world was MAU and DAU. Our engagement metric is revenue. And the, and the best way to measure that is actual revenue per member, revenue per product. And so I didn't want our team to think that we had to create proxies for revenue, but that revenue was the, you know, the engagement metric. Um, and then ultimately the unit of revenue would be a member or a product. Yeah, but it, it was met with such skepticism, which, which kind of surprised me, you know, I, I, I mean, and it hurt your stock for a time, you know, if, uh, right. But I think sticking, sticking to something that you believed uh, was true and, and is clearly playing out to be true um, was the right thing to do. Anthony, you talked about a winner takes most market, but you also talked about category winners. So can you kind of help us reconcile like what you see as winners in like the horizontal digital wallet landscape? And, and do you see winners still existing in, let's say like vertical niches? I think in the, in a horizontal sort of category, there's us, and I think there's the incumbents. Like I can't think of a digital, in the United States, a digital offering that has the product breadth that we have. I would say, you know, Robinhood has a couple products and Chime has two products that we're both going after different demographic groups, but no one really has the holistic one-stop shop approach other than B of A and City and Wells Fargo and, and JP Morgan. And I, I'd say of that group, JP Morgan is by far the best. There have been times where I'm like, oh, they're not that good. And we've hired a couple of people from there and I've gotten to know more people there. And I'm like, you know what? They're pretty good. They're really good, actually. And they're good in a sneaky way. Like, I didn't even know that JP Morgan Chase offers brokerage. They've had more brokerage members than we have. And it's kind of like below the radar screen. Do they do loans? They do, but only if you have a certain amount of net wealth. So, you know, the big incumbents, they're not going to go away. I mean, they have almost a trillion dollars of deposits. They have hundreds of billions of dollars but we're taking a little bit from all of them every day. And they don't even notice us because we're taking a little bit of all of them every day. I think the more vulnerable group is regional banks, credit unions, mom and pop things. And my analogy is to like Amazon. Amazon didn't go out and buy a bunch of bookstores. They just slowly took the share from the mom and pop bookstores. Now, I don't want that to happen in the banking industry. 
most people, 50% of the people, when you ask them, they want to bank a mile from their house. And we want to help support those banks. But we can support them by giving them modern technology through Galileo and our tech platform. We can support them by selling them more loans so they don't have to worry about originating loans and building those businesses, which they probably can't do. And we'll help them survive and build the overall ecosystem. I do think that we can participate without putting those banks out of business and helping them survive and serve their local communities. And in doing so, get to the same scale of, as the cities and the B of A's and the JP Morgans. Not to mention we're stealing a little bit of share from all of them along the way. In the category killer camp, I, I do think a company like a firm will stand for buy now, pay later. And it's at the point of checkout and kind of has the distribution. They just have to manage credit appropriately, access to funds appropriately. It's not easy. Um, but it, it, it ultimately is a, a model that can work. I do think they have to be a bank. I think Square completely owns SMB, completely. Now, we will be a great SMB business as it relates to loans and checking savings account, but to truly do payment processing, merchant acquiring, that's their business, and to serve the underbanked with Cash App, that's their business. So they will continue to be incredibly successful. And I think Chime will be very, very successful. They're a big partner of ours. They have a very unique value proposition. They stuck to their knitting, which really, really was smart and not deviating out into other areas that could have killed them. So um, those are just a few. And in terms of how SoFi evolved, uh, starting with lending and into full banking services, do you can you comment on maybe a strategic advantage there in terms of the logical steps in product diversification? As in, like, it was there a clear advantage starting from lending and then moving on to other services? Maybe it's harder to move from brokerage to you know other services and etc. So the benefit of lending as being the first product is that there's massive LTV. If you do it the right way, the LTV that you have day one in lending is about $1,000, which is a huge return. And if you think about the dollar profit you get from just a digital wallet, it's, you know, let's call it $100 first year, $100 second year, maybe it grows to $250, but it takes five years to get that same equivalent amount of LTV. So if you get that day one with lending, then you can actually subsidize the acquisition cost for the other products more prudently. Like the greatest advantage we had is that we had a huge LTV in the lending products. Now there's not as many of them. Like we, in our lifetime, we've only had a million personal loan products and 500,000 student loan products, but we have 11 million products. But that profit pool allowed us to fund the other businesses. Um, like even today, we're losing over $100 million in credit card and invest because of acquisition costs and not covering our fixed costs yet. So Lending is a big profit pool on a per person basis and a per loan basis. It's really hard to get right. You have to have the capital. You have to have the risk, the credit. You have to have the distribution. You have to have the financing. But it was a huge advantage. And even from a lending CAC, you keep it, you're far more efficient than, say, the legacy incumbents. Um, how much do you attribute that to your marketing strategy? And like, how, how do you think about brand and performance marketing? And uh, I guess against incumbents and other uh, neobanks. Yeah. So um, I was presenting to our board in the beginning of 2019, and I said something like the plan for the year, and we we're going to roll out SoFi Money, SoFi Credit Card, SoFi Invest that year, SoFi Relay. And I was really proud of that we built it all. It's about to roll out. And I said, it's a matter of when, not if. And everyone's like, when, not if what? I said, we become a, fine, a top 10 financial institution. They said, why are you so confident you haven't even launched the product yet? 
And I said, we designed them to be the best. And they're going to be the best. We will not stop until they're the best. We'll run hard every day. We'll iterate every day. The only thing standing between us and actually getting there is building trust, is building a household brand name. So, you know, there's a thing called unneeded brand awareness. It's measured by asking someone the question, when you want to use a financial services product, name three companies. Well, when I got to SoFi, if you asked 100 people that question, two would say SoFi. And so I did an analysis of Citi, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. There are between 25 and 45% of, the, of their brand, 100 people would say their names. I said, we have to become a household brand name like them. And if we do, our products will be top of mind and they'll be used. And it was literally at that moment that I said to myself, we got to do that damn LA stadium naming rights deal because it will instantly make us credible because the NFL also, I felt it was the most ambitious stage on the world and we'd have acts like Taylor Swift and the World Cup and the Olympics and the Super Bowl and the college football championship. And so literally from that moment on, I focused the team on building unaided brand awareness first and foremost. Yes, we need to do performance marketing to drive acquisition and acceptable vehicle. But if our brand had high unaided brand awareness, then the performance marketing would be even more efficient. People would click on our ads more. People would, we'd rank higher in search results, et cetera. So it's always been this 25% spending on brand awareness, on native brand awareness, and 75% on performance marketing. And it's proved out to be a great strategy. And Lauren, our CMO, has just hit the cover off the ball. And we announced this week the, the official bank of the NBA as another step in that process. Uh, we have something in common there. Uh, last week, we had our Big Ideas Investment Summit here at the New Innovation Center in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I had the pleasure and the privilege of interviewing Andre Iguodala. And oh, yeah. isn't that, and uh, honestly, Anthony, I, I mean, when <laughs> what happened was, I guess we were both in an airport somewhere and he tweeted about it, but I mean, I, I didn't meet him. I didn't, I, I didn't even know who he was. And one of our market, uh, Matt Stout on our marketing team called out in the mor morning meeting, hey, did you know Andre Iguodala uh, tweeted at you? And I said, and everybody went, what? I said, okay, who is he? You know, that's how terrible I am. And I'm, I'm into football uh, much more than basketball. But we had the most amazing discussion. What a, what a wonderful person he is. But do you know he's the president of the Players Association for the NBA? Yeah, I think that's fabulous. You know, Andre's a, a great person. He's, a, um, you know, obviously a great athlete, great teammate, but he's a great father and a great investor. I've gotten to know him out here in, uh, in California. We belong to the same uh, golf course and had the pleasure of uh, being together a few times and chatting about things from an investment standpoint to um, playing the game that we both love in golf. Oh, that's so amazing. Uh, one, one other just side note here. I, I just have to throw it in because uh, as an investor over the years, whenever I've seen a company invest in or get the naming rights for sports stadiums, I've been, uh-oh, uh-oh. And so, yeah, when I saw that, I said, but typically that has happened when they're flying high and there's a big ego-related uh, reason. It is not 
for the reason that you just described. So, uh, but just I just wanted to put that out as a, as, as a marker for anyone who uses that indicator to sell a stock. I think it has done wonderful things for you. So congratulations you. on that. I was equally skeptical for a year and a half until I literally said those words, we have to become a household brand name. And I'm like, oh, I got to go tell the team the deal they've been trying to get me to do for a year and a half, we actually have to do. And what is your, uh, what is your score now on brand recognition? You want to get to the Yeah, it's up to 7% seven from 2%. And that's, you know, it, it's a huge increase. It, it, it's been higher and lower, but that's sort of the last 13-week average. Uh, and we track it and, you know, it's been as high as, 10, 11%. And uh, when I started, it was at 2%. And the team is really, this is another classic example of like iterating and iterating and iterating. You know, the first year we did the stadium deal, we didn't realize we had to actually advertise during the game when it was at SoFi Stadium. Because people would hear SoFi, they would do searches, but they didn't actually know what it was. And so I'm like, okay, we'll run an ad. In the second quarter, we run an ad. And then the funny thing is, before we did the deal, the board asked me, how do you justify the cost of this? How many accounts do you think are open? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, why are you recommending it then? I said, oh, here's my math. Right now we spend about $20 million on the US Open Championship tennis, US Open golf, Big Ten Conference Championship, Big East Basketball Championship, and we only and um, ESPN X games. And we only reach 15 million people one time a year on $20 million. Because I worked at the NFL, I know that this stadium will probably get four to six primetime games. And each primetime game gets about 20 to 25 million people. So one game is worth what we used to spend on all those other things. We'll stop doing that and we'll put the money to this and we'll get five times that amount from the, from the primetime games. And the team really brought it to life because, you know, you have, let's just say the first game of the year, Monday Night Football, it's at SoFi Stadium. We run our ad. Next Monday night, it's not at SoFi Stadium, but the same audience comes back because they want to watch Monday Night Football. And so you're hitting 10, 15 times in a, in a year, and it really has worked out well. I have to throw in another story here about you um, that, I, that I just found remarkable. Um, you joined, you became CFO of the NFL when? Uh, 2008, January of 2008. January of 2008. And I remember you, you and I used to take the same train. It was the, we got off at the Darien train station from New York City. And so I used to see you regularly and you had left our business. And I thought, what the heck? And I just didn't. Uh, um, conveniently, you skipped the 0809 crisis and then went back to Goldman when? 2010 or 11? 11. Yeah, I was, I was at the NFL 8, 9 and 10. So you even skipped the European sovereign debt crisis. Like you have amazing timing. <laughs> anyway, better to be lucky than good. Uh, no, that was that was a great call. Great call. Plus, you had a lot of fun. NFL, right? I did. It was a great experience. So we talked a lot about core banking features with respect to building a one-stop shop. I think it'd be great. Maybe we can officially pivot the conversation to SoFi Invest, right? You, uh, SoFi announced a pretty big product launch earlier this month, right? The launch of alternative investment vehicles, uh, giving retail investors the ability to invest in venture, private credit, real estate, uh, and other mutual funds. Can you talk about the process of building this product, main challenges that arose and the road ahead? Sure. In the big picture, we want to differentiate on 
a number of different um, vectors. One is fast, one is selection, content convenience. And on selection in Invest itself, when we launched, you know, the board was very skeptical about how we would differentiate and invest given there were so many incumbents and also many startups that already reached significant scale like Robinhood. And I said, well, we're going to have better selection, just like Amazon has better selection in books. And so they're like, well, how doesn't Robinhood offer all the stocks? I'm like, they do. Um, so we'll have stocks without commissions, which they had. We're also going to launch fractional shares, which no one had, uh, which we did and then others have copied. We have six of our own robo accounts. Uh, we have our own ETFs. And then we started IPOs and now alternative asset classes. And crypto was another one of the selection uh, differentiators. So my view is you should be able to buy anything you want in one place and not have, to have, not have to have five brokerage accounts and a cryptocurrency account, et cetera. And that's what's really been our differentiation. In terms of getting the IPOs, because I used to be a banker and we are a broker dealer, that was about just selling the value proposition of SoFi to these issuers. And it's gone really well. We're giving Main Street access to IPOs at IPO prices and they never would have gotten that before. So it's been great for the partners and great for us from a member acquisition vehicle. And alternative asset classes, ARC, as you know, is part of the portfolio that we're offering. Many of the asset managers realize that the vast amount of growth over the next 20, 30 years is going to come from retail. It's about democratizing their offerings to reach a whole new audience that previously was only reserved for the wealthiest people in the, in the world. And so it took both companies being willing to do that and our technology and technology partners being able to do it. It took us about a year and a half to get the product built, to do all the integrations, get through the legal process and get it launched. But it's been a great success so far. You know, we really have to give diversity of selection. We can't just offer one or two. Otherwise you can, you know, get in trouble from a recommendation standpoint. So we've launched with six different partners. ARC is one of them, of course, and we're very thankful and feel the privilege of having it on our platform. Uh, but Carlisle and KKR and, Franklin uh, Templeton and Clarion are other partners as well. So they're on the app. You don't have to have any minimum asset size. Um, you can buy them right in the app. There's a minimum amount that you have to invest, but it's not that not that high. And what I've found is the performance, it's one of the few um, assets you can buy that actually has the performance right there at the point of purchase. And the performance has been really good for several of them and very attractive for our members. So it's worked out well so far. And I'd love to just on on the democratization. I agree with you. That's what ARC is all about: democratization, transparency, and uh, really giving away our research so that um, so that uh, potential clients can understand how profoundly the world's going to change in the years ahead. So, thank you for providing your wonderful platform. You know, I think it was about a year ago that we met at uh, an interest in Horowitz conference and said, hey, we should do this. Yeah. So it's worked out well. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Democratization seems to be one variable disrupting private wealth. What do you think of AI, generative AI, um, and how are you playing with it within SoFi? You know, I'd say at this point, we're using it more for um, providing great customer service. That That's a natural language model that, that we use AI for. Um, we use it to help power our member home feed. We're trying to answer three questions every day for you in the member home feed, which is what must you do in that that day financially? What should you do in your life that day financially? And what could you do? The other place we're using it is on fraud and risk. And I think that probably has the greatest potential impact for the industry. You know, if I go back to my e-commerce days in the late 90s, 
a lot of people wouldn't buy online after 2000 because when they did the year before, the product never showed up or you couldn't return it or it was the wrong product. And it took the whole industry to get better, not just Amazon, but anyone else that was in the business. And I think in the fintech space, we're only going to be as good as our weakest link. And if you put your money with a company and lose it all, the whole industry gets that black eye. And so I think generative AI is a way to really combat fraud, synthetic fraud, account takeover fraud, and really make the industry safe to operate digitally. And so one of the things that we do at, at our tech platform is we license payment risk platform. It's using AI to predict whether or not a transaction's safe. And we're only charging pennies per, per call of that technology, but it's really a consortium. We're using all the data that we have. We're helping people build algorithms so they can run the right types of safety modules they need to avoid you know, transactional fraud. Whose platform were, were, are you using, uh, Anthony? Our, our SoFi, so our, our tech platform, Galileo oh, Technosys. Okay, you're yeah. on, oh, you're on, okay. We have, a, yeah, we have about eight, we have about eight billion transactions through our payment processing got it. at Galileo. And so that gives you a lot of data yes. that can help train the models. Got it, got it, got it. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to ask more about Galileo. Um, and it's the AWS aspect to your Amazon analogy, but I think we are running low on time. So I just want to say this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Anthony and Kathy, for your time and sharing your knowledge today. And we at ARC are very excited to see SoFi's growth from a leading challenger bank to a leading bank overall as the decade progresses. Um, one final question for you before concluding the podcast episode. Uh, what about SoFi as a whole excites you most as you consider its product evolution over the next five years? And is there anything you'd like to communicate to consumers and investors for the year ahead? I'd say it's still day one. And I know that's a term that Jeff Bezos has used a lot, but I've, it, I've been here for six years. It feels like we just started. We're just scratching the surface with what we can do from an innovation standpoint, a data standpoint what we can do to help people get their money right. It, and, you know, we're, we're just starting to do things like helping people budget better, helping them lower their cost of debt, really starting to come up with more solutions than just products. And I truly believe that if we can be the Facebook of your friends, the Twitter of your news, the business of LinkedIn, if you come to our member home feed and we can answer three questions for you every day, better than anyone else, what must you do that day? What should you do that day? What can you do that day in your financial life? We will help people get to where they want to go and to live the American dream. And so I still feel like even though it's been six years, it's day one, and there's so much more innovation ahead of us. Um, and I know there's never going to be a straight path anywhere, but I know that we're best prepared to get there than compared to anyone else. With that, thank you again. And this has been another episode of For Your Innovation. Uh, thank you all for listening. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. <laughs>